0: This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. So that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Well,
1: this summer we're looking at uh, the songs that uh, Jewish pilgrims would sing on their way up to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the high holidays. And these songs express a deep longing uh, to be in God's presence, to be transformed by Him in the context of community. And one of the things that, that draws people to God is our longing for redemption. We long to be accepted and welcomed into the heart of things, we long to be made whole. We long to know that, that no part of our lives, even the grisly, messy, harmful parts of our lives, will be wasted. And that's what Psalm 130 is all about. It's this this longing for redemption. Before we dive in, I I want to give credit to uh, Tim Keller, whose work with this psalm was enormously helpful to me as I prepared this sermon. It's easy to miss the raw emotion in this psalm, but it begins with acute distress. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. The psalmist is in over his head. He's drowning in guilt, and he cries out for mercy. Now, we have to ask, is this psalm still relevant? Can we relate to this drowning? Most people in Western Mass would say that sin is an antiquated idea. Guilt is just a feeling to brush off. Uh, No one has the right to tell you what you should or shouldn't do, so why should you feel guilty? Is anyone really drowning? Absolutely. There are two words that are often paired together in the scriptures, um, guilt and shame. And they're not the same thing. They're, they're different things. The opposite of guilt is innocence. I feel guilty when I break a rule, when I break a law. I feel guilty because of something I did. The opposite of shame is glory. I feel ashamed because I fell short. I fell short of my goal. I fell short of my dream. I fell short of someone's expectations for me. I'm not good enough. My life is deficient in some way. I feel guilt because of something I do. I feel shame because of something I am. So for instance, if I tell a lie, I might feel guilty because I broke a rule. There's a rule against lying. I shouldn't do that. But I might feel shame because I never realized how much of a coward I am. I feel shame because I hid, because I covered myself up, because I didn't act with integrity. I I proved that I wasn't trustworthy, see? So we have these two experiences, guilt and shame, and they're different. We feel guilt over what we do. We feel shame over who we are. In a culture like ours where most people don't think in terms of, okay, I have to obey God. I have to obey the rules. In that kind of culture, guilt pretty much disappears. And yet, we still experience shame. And I think we're experiencing shame more than ever. There are a lot of people in the valley who had to have a, a very difficult time identifying anything specific that they think that they've done wrong rules that they've broken and yet we are constantly plagued by the sense that we've fallen short that we're just not good enough we don't talk about sin and guilt instead we say things like i'm a mess i'm a hot mess i'm a disaster i'm a disappointment we don't feel guilt and yet we keep falling short of glory We keep comparing ourselves to other people and saying we're not good enough. I'm a mess. I'm a disaster. We're still drowning. See? Only now we don't know what to do about it. Something's wrong, but we don't know exactly what it is that's wrong. So we go to a therapist. And the therapist says, there's no reason to feel bad. Just decide who you're going to be and go for it. Just do you. Do you. Forget what everyone else says. Just be your authentic self. And it sounds really liberating when someone says that, but it's actually terrible advice. You know how I know? Because just about every week, I end up counseling someone who feels utterly crushed by this pressure to cast some great vision for their life and then attain it. Because that's what we're supposed to do, right? That's how we're supposed to get get glory on our own terms. I talk with people who can't decide who they want to be. And so they beat themselves up about their indecision. I talk with people who have a vision, but they've yet to realize it. They haven't actualized it. They feel bad about that. I talk with people who've tried, and they failed. They had a vision. They fell short. The career never happened. The marriage imploded. The kids didn't turn out the way they hoped. They're lonelier than they were expecting to be. And they beat themselves up every day. We got rid of God. We got rid of sin and guilt and we're still drowning. Only now, without guilt, without God, we have no way of dealing with our shame. We have no way to even put our finger on quite what what went wrong. So yes, this psalm still speaks. Yes, we still need to cry out to God for mercy. So how does the gospel help? Well, it helps us in two ways. First, The gospel gives us an objective standard. It tells us what's right and wrong. You say, how does that help? Well, it's really important because we can't trust our feelings. Let's get really practical. You know people who never feel bad about anything. They're never wrong. Every time there's conflict, it's someone else's fault. They never feel guilty. You know people like that. They're often defensive, they're quick to justify themselves, they're quick to blame other people, but it's never their fault. In their mind, their conscience is always clean. Now, you probably also know people who always feel guilty, who always feel bad about themselves, who are completely driven by guilt. Almost everything that they do is motivated by guilt or or by this quest to get rid of it. And this is often true of religious people or formerly religious people. But but there's a spectrum, isn't there? Some people who have virtually no feelings of guilt and some people who experience constant guilt and, of course, people in between. But, But if you look closely, there's usually no correlation between people's actual behavior and how much guilt they feel. There's no correlation there their feelings of guilt are much more a function of their personality and temperament, maybe their family of origin, maybe the religious uh, upbringing and community that they grew up in. So if there's a a spectrum of feelings that doesn't actually correlate in any meaningful way with behavior, how, (laughs) how do we know when we should yield to our feelings of guilt and make changes in our lives? And when we should just brush those feelings off, how do we know? Some guilt is good, right? When we harm people, when we use people, when we break our promises, we should feel guilty. Our conscience should bark at us. That internal alarm bell should go off and we should listen to and yield to those feelings and make things right. Hitler should have experienced guilt. Abusers and sexual predators should experience guilt. People who oppress and degrade the environment should experience guilt. Some guilt is good. And some guilt is bad. Some guilt is not rooted in reality. Some guilt is not helpful at all. How do we know which is which? How do we know which feelings we should yield to and which feelings we should brush off? Well, listen to verse three. in the Hebrew in the Hebrew, verse three says literally, "God watches us sin." Meaning the eyes of God are the only eyes that matter. If your parents say to you, you are such a disappointment to us. We invested so much in you. We gave you every opportunity, a great education, and look what you're doing with it. Your career does not match the investment that we made in you. Or we thought we'd have grandchildren by now and you're still single. What is wrong with you? What do you do with that? I mean, those are words that are designed to stoke shame in you. What do you do with that? Well, if you're a Christian, you can go to God and say, does this stuff matter to you? Should I feel bad about this? And God will say, no. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care when and if you start a family. That's not important to me. Eyes up, eyes up. You can brush that off. You can brush those feelings away. Beth and I were talking about that this week, and um. Beth said, every morning when I go to work, as I'm about to get in my car, look up into our bedroom window, and there's Buddy, our dog, looking really sad. And I feel guilty about leaving him. And I'm thinking, you never feel guilty about leaving me. She said, but I have to remind myself, he's a dog, okay? He'll be fine. I have a job to do. I have a calling from God to teach. I don't need to feel guilty about this dog, but I pretty much feel guilty every single day when I leave until I remind myself that God is not asking me to stay home with my dog. (laughs) Often I feel guilty because I'm not calling or visiting everyone on my list every week. And I have to tell myself, look, God hasn't given me a quota. Those are my expectations. Those aren't God's expectations for me. If I don't connect with every single person on my list, that's okay. In some cases, God will give you permission to brush off those feelings of guilt. He'll let you off the hook. He'll say, it's okay. Your parents might be disappointed in you. Your partner might be disappointed in you. Your boss might be disappointed in you, but I'm not. And other times, God will convict you. I mean, if you cheat on your spouse, if you say to yourself, "Eh, I was bored, I wasn't feeling very fulfilled, I had had to do it. I had to know that I was still desirable. Plus, if my spouse wasn't so cold or so busy or so wrapped up in their work, I wouldn't have had to. If you do that, God will lovingly say to you, "Uh, not so fast. You broke a promise, you broke a covenant, you broke trust, you made sex all about you. You're guilty. Whether you feel guilty or not, you're guilty. And you better knock it off and confess and retrace your steps. Stop justifying your selfishness and blaming other people for it. See, God's standard gives you the ability to discern which guilty feelings you should yield to and which guilty feelings you can brush off. God's objective standard liberates you from the opinions of others. It helps you to see your blind spots so that you can stop hurting others. There's this wonderful moment in the Apostle Paul's life, and you can can read it in 1 Corinthians 4. But Paul knows that there are people in this church that he's writing to who are actively trying to discredit him and sabotage his ministry. Can you imagine that? And he says this. He says, look, I don't care if people judge me. I don't even judge myself. That's what Paul says. In other words, it doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't even matter what I say. The only thing that matters is what God says. That's the Apostle Paul. Modern people love that first part. It doesn't matter what people say. And then they quickly add, it only matters what I say. But that doesn't solve the problem, does it? Because even if my opinion is the only one that matters, that might get rid of the guilt, but it doesn't get rid of the shame. Because if I have a vision for my life and I don't attain it, if there's a gap between who I am and who I set out to be, I'm still going to feel shame. I'm still going to drown. I mean, you can brush people off. You can brush God off and and guilt off. But you can't be at peace with yourself if your opinion matters that much. You'll still feel guilty about the dog. (laughs) You'll still feel guilty about the list of names. You'll still feel guilty when you can't be in two places at once. Paul is uniquely free. He says, I don't care what you think. I don't even care what I think. It is the Lord who judges me, and his is the only opinion that matters. If you believe this, if you believe that God is real, that he has an objective standard of right and wrong, that you're accountable to him, that is actually incredibly liberating. Why? Because it means that you have something to grab onto. You have an objective standard by which you can evaluate your feelings. You're not only free from what others say about you, you're free from your own inner voice beating you up. In order to stop drowning, we need an objective standard by which to evaluate our feelings. But that's not all we need. If we stopped there, we would still drown because we all fall short of God. We need something more, we need a redeemer. Listen to verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? If God was stalking you with a clipboard and a cattle prod, keeping track of every sin you commit, poised and ready to zap you every time you mess up, we would be in big trouble. But that's not what God is like. God sees us drowning. And he graciously waits for us to cry out to him so that he can throw us a rope. Listen to verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness. I don't know about your parents. I don't know about your boss or your partner. But God will forgive you. With you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. What's going on? God is dealing with our guilt. People who feel guilty all the time, some of you, I'm talking about you. People who feel guilty all the time, their guilt is what drives them. It's what motivates almost everything that they do. It's crippling, even the good things that they do, giving gifts, volunteering time, helping out, showing love, they're all motivated by guilt. I have to do these things or I'll feel bad about myself. I have to do these things to get God off of my back. But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. Reverence is this idea of wonder and awe and joy and gratitude. Where does it come from? It comes from the experience of being forgiven. It comes from the experience of tasting God's mercy. So now, instead of being driven by guilt, all these good things, giving gifts, volunteering, caring for people, all those things can be motivated by joy, by gratitude to God for His mercy towards you, which means all of the have-tos become get-tos. All of the compulsions become free acts Fear gives way to joy. When we were drowning, we cried out to God, and He didn't ignore us. He didn't blow our doors off. He didn't rub our faces in our mistakes. He forgave us. He wiped our slate clean. God's forgiveness gives us a whole new motivation for everything we do. Strips away our fear. Replaces it with gratitude and wonder. Verse 7 says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. The opposite of shame is glory. One of the ways we try to duck shame is by trying to achieve glory through our own efforts. So we say, hey, if I'm successful, if I achieve, then I'll have glory and I won't feel ashamed anymore. If I have a great family life, And my kids turn out great, then I'll have glory and I won't feel ashamed anymore. And what we're doing is we're putting our hope in something other than God. We're putting our hope in our performance. And when we fall short, guess what? Your career isn't going to die for your sins, your family isn't going to wash away your guilt and shame. They can't. What's the alternative? Put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the only one who will never let you down. Put your hope in the only one who, if you find him, will fulfill you. And if you fail him, will forgive you. Put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. God's unfailing love means that you don't ever have to worry about being found out. You don't ever have to hide. God already knows everything about you. Everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, every wish, every fantasy, every fear and insecurity, everything that you try to keep hidden, everything you try to cover up, and guess what? God still loves you. He knows everything about you, and he still loves you. Unfailing love means that there's nothing that you could ever do to make God love you any more than he already does. And there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any less than he does right now. With the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption, meaning God not only accepts you and welcomes you, he wants to transform you. He wants to lead you beyond where you are. He doesn't just forgive your sin and cancel your guilt. He deals with your shame by calling you his beloved. By making you beautiful like he is beautiful. In order to stop drowning you need two things. You need an objective standard outside of yourself. To know which feelings of guilt you should yield to. And which feelings you can brush off. And you need a redeemer. He needs someone who will not only accept you just as you are. But lead you beyond where you were. In other words, you need grace and truth. You need a a God who's holy and just and a God who's merciful. For a long time, uh, hundreds of years, the Israelites had no idea how God could possibly be simultaneously just and merciful. It's kind of one of those equations that makes your brain overheat. How could God punish sin and justify sinners? They knew that he would do it. He'd find a way somehow. They just didn't know how he would do it. How would God redeem Israel from all their sins? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on the cross so that we could be made righteous in God's eyes. Jesus, who never experienced guilt, not even for a second, who lived the perfect life, ended up dying the death that we should have died so that we could have life and have it to the full. Jesus, who never once fell short of the Father's glory, nevertheless bore our shame so that we could one day be glorified in God's presence. Why would he do this? To redeem us, to pull us out of the depths, to put our feet on solid ground, to make us part of his new creation, No one loves you like Jesus loves you at infinite cost to himself. So what does it look like practically to live each day in God's mercy? Listen to verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. First off, living in God's mercy is a process. There's waiting involved. And the waiting isn't passive, it's active, it's it's intense, it's passionate, it's hopeful. What are we waiting for? It's not forgiveness. We have that the second we ask for it. We're waiting for deeper communion with God, deeper sanctification to steal Jasmine's word. We're waiting to become like him, to reflect his character in the world. But it's a process. The psalmist says, in his word, I put my hope. I put my hope in God's objective standard. He shows me right and wrong. He shows me what leads to life. I put my hope in God's forgiveness and unfailing love when others are disappointed with me. When I'm tempted to beat myself up God assures me that He still loves me, that I still have worth in His eyes. I put my hope in the promise of redemption, in this idea that God is actively leading me beyond where I was. He's growing me. He's maturing me. He's making me beautiful like He is beautiful. I put my hope in the promise that guilt and shame won't have the last word in my life. Not only has God declared me innocent, he says that my destiny is glory. But it's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. When you cry out to Jesus for mercy, in that instant, you are judged innocent. In that moment, you can stand before God just as if you had never sinned. But our old habits, our old thought patterns, those can stay with us for a while. We have our old self, that part that wants to, you know, call the shots and run the show. And we have our new self, the part that allows Jesus to lead us and to show us how life works best. And it's almost like we have two hard drives and we can boot up one or the other at any given moment. Martin Luther calls baptism the daily drowning of the old self. Taking that part of us, that hard drive that wants to run the show, that wants to call the shot and just hold him under the water till his lips turn blue. It takes time. It's a process. If you're the night watchman waiting for morning, takes forever. You're all alone, it's quiet, nothing is happening. Nothing but your thoughts, nothing but the crickets. Waiting for morning takes forever, but it always comes. Growth in Christ is a process. Adapting to God's grace and mercy is a process, but the result is inevitable. Morning always comes. Part of the trick is learning to cry out for mercy, not just once, but every day. Trusting that the work that God began in you is going to be brought to completion when Jesus returns. Oh, friends, put your hope in the Lord. For with Him is unfailing love and full redemption. Let's pray. God, we want uh, this kind of passionate relationship with You that we that we see enacted in this psalm. We don't, we don't want some... Tired, dogged, religious plod. Not some rote, scripted relationship with you. We want one where we are habitually crying out to you for mercy. We're depending on you. We're allowing you to remove our guilt, to take away our shame, to change us from the inside. We need that. It's hard to admit, but in our truest, most authentic moments, we come to you and we say, we're drowning. Take away our pride so that we can ask for help. Take away our fear so that we can turn to you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.